0: Hello, and welcome. You're listening to talkville 21, the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tocqueville 21 podcast. I'm your host, Shane McLaurin, Managing Editor at talkville 21. Today... I'm happy to present you with the second half of our dense, rousing interview with Alexi Carré, a political philosopher and the 2022-2023 Thomas W. Smith Postdoctoral Research Associate of the James Madison Program at Princeton University. Today's episode continues many of the themes evoked in the first half of the interview, civic duty and the war in Ukraine chief among them. But in addition, Alexi offers insight into the nature of democracy, the West, and the distinction between a right to freedom and a responsibility to it. I hope you enjoy it. All right, well that actually, I I gotta say that was beautiful because we careened wildly from the questions and here we are back at the next one, which is really, is there an ideological unity in the West, broadly speaking? And what is your perspective on the idea of the West in general?
1: If you look at the political situation, one of the defining factors of the Western hemisphere is the existence of liberal democratic regimes and of certain kind of fellowship created by the fact of sharing such a regime that uh, comes into play in defining the West to the extent that beyond that positive relationship between the members, it also sets a potentially negative relationship with other players internationally. One of the things that people often forget is that the very existence of liberal democracy is often seen and cannot help but be seen as a threat by authoritarian regimes because they exemplify the possibility of an alternative Whereas all authoritarian regimes, and we, we could see that, you know, in the Soviet Union, tend to argue for their own absolute necessity. And the biggest way of asserting necessity is believing in one's being the product of a necessary history. Soviet Russia certainly claimed that its existence was made necessary and possible by the very laws of human nature and human history. Once regimes around such states exist that provide proof against the argument of necessity, then there is a vested interest on the part of those regimes to subvert and destroy such regimes. You can see that this should lead us to think of the West as some kind of positive unity that helps us gain protection from mutual cooperation, because none of the European nations on its own, can really ensure its security. I mean, yes, on a daily basis, faced with simple issues. But in the case of a major war, there is no positive outcome to be expected from a disunited West. Hmm. I think this should be our goal to further the fellowship that exists between our nations. And that implies, as I mentioned before, some policy changes in Europe But that also implies a transatlantic dialogue because Mm. we won't be able to achieve those goals without cooperating with the U.S. Mm. In as much as there is sometimes a temptation from the part of the Americans to divert their attention from Europe towards the Pacific and China, there is also a temptation on the part of the Europeans to think that, oh, China is the U.S.'s problem and ultimately we don't need them Let them go to war and let us simply keep doing what we do best, be at peace and trade and that type of stuff. I think people need to come to terms with those two illusions. Europeans have something to bring to the table, including when they are being politically autonomous. So that shouldn't be perceived as a threat. They are an essential key within the Western alliance in many respects due to the size of their economy, the very strategic autonomy that I mentioned, their capacity to develop independent weapon systems to carry out certain types of
0: missions.
2: Hmm.
0: No, 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 I agree. So you'd answer to some degree that the ideological unity of the West is this sense of openness, is this ability for diverse perspectives on, well, among other things, security, but also a response that aims to preserve that common sense of openness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Openness is an ambiguous virtue Mm. because being open to bad things is itself a bad thing. Mm. I think it goes further than that, in that the existence of a politically diverse Western hemisphere, so the existence of autonomous nations, despite the fact that if we were to follow a sheer logic of power, imperial relations imbalance of power should lead to the disappearance of smaller states and it's not the case in the western hemisphere and no small state can feel threatened in its own existence by its being a member of the alliance Mm -hmm. what that manifests i think is that what we care about or what we should care about at least because maybe we have forgotten it to a large extent is that our regime allows us to cultivate and act upon the civic friendship that ties us. Mm. Every regime is, in a certain sense, a system to produce practical judgment. Mm. So to produce decisions based on knowledge of the circumstances and the goals and the means, etc. One thing that I think the way the West is shaped teaches us Is that liberal democracy in itself doesn't provide wisdom to people, which is why, by the way, when we impose a liberal democratic constitution on other people, it doesn't work. So these institutions, to a large extent, and that may be controversial to say that, but have no value of their own. They organize civic friendship and civic friendship, the willingness not to be separated from others, is what leads us to try to convince each other. And therefore, it's it's what leads us to exercise practical reason. Because were we to have no such sense of civic friendship, the fact of having diverging interests or diverging perspectives would simply lead us to want to be separated. I don't want to live with people who disagree with me and towards whom I have no desire to remain one people. I think that's one of the illusions behind some perspectives on the European Union, that we could go beyond the national states and just merge ourselves into a gigantic institutional apparatus. European people do not want to be one people. The development of an overarching institutional uh, structure has just exemplified that, The, the complete failure of any attempt to go beyond the level at which people are ready to discuss with one another because they're unwilling to separate from each other. That level is the national level. In no way have the last 30 years or 40 years shown any indication that that type of civic friendship was being built
0: at the European level.
2: Hmm.
0: I agree, but I think there's an interesting tension there. I'm not so sure that the national level is the most logical organizing principle for that and that there aren't elements of coercion that exist at that level. Let's think of the tensions that exist within the United Kingdom, which already exemplifies a degree of coercion with regards to Scotland and Northern Ireland. And another example is Catalonia in Spain, which very much desires a degree, you know, a greater degree of autonomy, but is maintained within Spain. For reasons of national unity that are to which the Catalonians are not amenable, let's put it that way. So there is an element of coercion, which brings me to my other question. You spoke about with regards to the 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 intellectual conception of the West, its very its its openness to some degree is a threat inherently, is inherently a threat to the existence of authoritarian regimes. Is that internal element of coercion not itself a manifestation of a certain form of tyranny, one. And two, is that entire conception not itself a sort of Hegelian conception that is in opposition, but very much parallel to the way that authoritarian countries view themselves?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: First, I don't think one can draw from independence movements within the Union the conclusion that the national level wouldn't be the relevant level, because those movements are movements of national independence. When a people want to exercise political autonomy, its only claim to legitimacy is the claim that it constitutes a nation, that there is a Scottish nation, that there is a Catalonian nation. And so I think those examples rather confirm that To a large extent, they're not making an argument about liberal democracy or constitutional theory. Mm. They're making an argument about where is the civic friendship that legitimizes our regime situated? Is it between us Catalonians or is it between us Spaniards? Mm. Is it between us British or is it between us uh, Scotsmen? I would rather think that those examples sort of exemplify what I was uh, trying to say. And I think you pointed out another interesting thing by saying that our openness is what constitutes a threat to authoritarian regimes. I think it's also what constitutes a threat to us in the sense that the kind of humanitarian morality that is tied to the development of modern liberal democracy, tends to lead us to look and act towards others as if they were like ourselves. You know, it's bad to judge people differently. We are all humans, etc. To a large extent, this has led us to misconceive, misapprehend the way other countries or societies were conducting themselves. Mm. That ties up to my point that a regime's worth is in its capacity to produce the right decisions, to produce and exercise practical wisdom. Mm. And certainly that is not wise to understand other countries the way we have understood them for many years by simply thinking that their only goal was to converge with us and that all the conflicts that we had with them were simply of an accidental nature, that they were developmental problems whose end was essentially a global convergence of all societies towards, by and large, the same model. Some people reject that model, reject us, are acting in such a way as to subvert and destroy our regimes, and not acknowledging that is practical unwisdom. There is uh, some lessons to be learned from that dialectic of openness and closeness, because to a large extent, people tend to conflate nations and nationalism and mm-hmm. consider that any defense of the nation, of closed societies, is a defense of nationalism. I I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think our existence within nations is a big part of what allows us to exercise self-government in a way that is wise and just. These type of illusions that develop as soon as we disregard that fact and obvious illusions. I'm not even. You don't have to be ideologically committed to any options to see that it's very unwise to behave the way we have done. I think those points towards the problem that we have in our misapprehension of the link between national sovereignty, civic friendship,
0: and liberal democracy. Hmm. With regards to that, one of the things that I really wanted to discuss on this podcast was the idea of realism within an international relations context, and the idea that the atomistic engagement of different nations based on specific interests and the view of the nation or the undifferentiated nation-state as the base unit of analysis within international relations. Is that incompatible, do you feel, with this broader sense of liberalism within nationalism that you just described?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that's a very interesting question, because it especially relates to the topic of my research, because Raymond Aron was one of the scholars who introduced IR theory, a discipline of quite recent origin. In France in the early fifties and sixties, and his book, Peace and War Among Nations, was immediately identified as being part of what people call the realists higher theory. And what's interesting is that long before Aron wrote on those type of issues, he claimed the label realist in the thirties. But what he meant by that is very different than what people usually ascribe as being a realist overview of uh, international relations. Usually, realists tend to focus on objective factors of sorts. They tend to think that there is a set national interest that doesn't really evolve depending on the regimes. So the national interest of Tsarist Russia is by and large the same as the national interest of Soviet Russia and that by focusing on facts and not on ideology and motives, the hard-headed realist would be more efficient in devising policies. And as I said, to a large extent, by claiming to be a realist, uh, Arun claims the exact opposite. Hmm. His analysis of international relations is very much based on what he calls a moral, political moral psychology of actors, and especially elites. And because it is obvious that when things which pertains to international policy, to threats, alliances, etc., all such human categories and concepts that have a very different meaning, depending on, you could say, the moral outlook that you possess. So in the 30s, one way to explain Hitler's policy Is And that's what Aron is trying to uphold, is it's impossible to understand Germany's behavior and its foreign policy if you don't account first for the specificity of Nazi ideology, the specificity of the kind of moral, the kind of passions that it draws out of people. And secondly, it's impossible to understand it if you don't get that Hitler had understood the same factors in liberal democracies. Inasmuch as he was arrogant and cruel, he knew that European elites were conflict averse, that they would be ready to accept any compromise because they considered war to be the greatest of all evils, or an evil, paraphrasing uh, Russell, an evil that is worse than all the ones it's meant to prevent, and therefore that he could count on them to act in a certain way not because he had focused only on facts and self-interest or national self-interest. He could count on them acting in a certain way because he had understood their psychology, their moral psychology. The way they would appreciate certain facts in a certain way would lead them to act in a certain way. And so, for example, when he invaded Czechoslovakia, he knew that very probably France and England would accept the deal that he was trying to strike with them. Uh, of course, that is not, you know, an exact science. And in the case of Poland, it ended up not going as planned. But I think Aron always tried to understand moral judgments, human passions as essential parts of the reality to be observed. And he always considered that a social science that he ignored these facts was simply not a science, because it was completely inadequate to its objects.
0: I'm trying very hard not to uh, vociferously agree Um, and to to launch into a diatribe about, you know, like how any reasonable person would consider, in fact, that, yes, that these are the sort of concerns that are absolutely necessary to factor into international relations, and that it's almost self-evident. And it's obvious, for example, with regards to the recent a rapprochement between China, Russia and Iran who from a purely geopolitical perspective have conflicting interests mm-hmm. and what they really share is an authoritarian form of government which means that their interests in maintaining those governments align. But the question that I wanted to ask is um do you feel that the distinction between Raymond Aron's perception of realism and the broader one within the Western context, is a sort of continental versus Anglosphere divide. Do you feel that the current perception of realism in an international relation context is due to a broader game theoretification of everything in the Anglophone social sciences?
1: So I I would agree that there are specific problems that tend to make it more difficult to promote that type of political science in the sphere, But I, I don't think that continental versus analytical divide would work here because on the continent, to a large extent as well, IR theory presents the same defects. Hmm. Raymond Aron's perspective on international relations cannot really be said to be a mainstream one within Europe. But I do think it's the most relevant one. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I have a vested interest in claiming that. But when I talk about my research to people who are not pursuing those type of uh, studies, I often take the example of delinquents mugging people in the street. A uh, value-free social science would have us believe that they are just selecting people randomly, whereas it's obvious then In a lot of cases, when someone approaches you on the street and, for example, asks you for a cigarette, a lot of time, aggressions follow scenarios. They're morally testing you. If you've accepted to do something I ask you to do once, you're more likely to accept doing it twice. And this time, it won't be a cigarette. It will be probably your wallet or something. So delinquents tend to select their victims because they're victims or behave like uh, victims. And in the opposite way, accepting the claims or satisfying the claims of an aggressor because they are reasonable in no way protects you from this aggressor going further. Hmm. The idea that calculations matter more than the actual passion at work in the carrying out of that endeavor is simply quite unrealistic if you have accepted to give me your wallet nothing prevents me from performing unnecessary violence on you because i know that you've accepted to give me your wallet uh, without defending yourself if you are defenseless then it means i can attack you i'll bear no consequences going further hmm. quite a lot of times it, it happens that way aron often described is scholarly endeavour as an attempt to, in a way, observe politics from the point of view of the agent. And that implies, in a certain sense, uh, going back to the very common categories of language that we use when talking about our own action, when talking about action in the way that it depends on us. Although the vocabulary of virtues and passions seem to be very imprecise, I think it is much more accurate in describing practical situations because the morally neutral and dispassionate vocabulary simply doesn't account for any of the reality it claims to account for.
0: Hmm. Another well-put answer. Well, we've been at this for a while. I think this might be a a good point to wrap things up. Mm -hmm. I I tend to to like to end the podcast on a a slightly more lighthearted question. Okay. Is there a case for resolving the issue of European sovereignty via a straightforward wrestling match between Macron and Schultz? Oh,
1: well, I think the first uh, difficulty that would need to be faced is France's economic but also political weakening in the last period. It's hard to get into a fight when you are losing it yourself at Mm. home. I'm not sure, I'm not optimistic about France's capability to carry out a serious policy on that question. Hmm. Uh, I I do think that it would be necessary and legitimate and in the interest of the broader Union, not only that uh, of France, but that would take a moral stamina that I can't vouch people uh, at the top have. Hmm. And in the case of Germany, I'm I'm not very optimistic either because mm. uh, although the there were some encouraging words at the beginning, we see that in terms of action and real commitment, they are already trying to pull back from a lot of these and seem to only do the right thing when they are forced to. <laughs> so um, I think the future is. Certainly not set in stone, but the path towards a positive outcome of that confrontation quite narrow, I think.
0: Hmm. Well, what are the alternatives?
1: Well, uh, there could be a dismantling of the union if things go really in the wrong direction. We cannot know how the political crisis in some countries might unfold, but the most probable Scenario is just a political paralysis, mm. uh, so a kind of indefinite status quo that engenders for
0: the whole continent a slow decline. Hmm. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, that's certainly an interesting hypothesis. That being said, I'm not sure there's a possibility for a slow decline within the European context. A dismantling of the Europe, well, for one, a dismantling of the European Union would be among other things, economically disastrous for everyone in the Eurozone, even if there is an argument to be made for greater economic sovereignty, particularly after these past 50 years of German economic hegemony. Let's simply put it that way. Uh, I think there's there's certainly an argument to be made for letting the, the nations of Europe have more control over their own monetary policy. With that in mind, I sympathize with with the dismantling of the European Union. But on the other hand, much as we've seen with Brexit, the removal of any one country from the common European endeavor has massive ramifications on the way that that country interacts with the rest of the continent. And with the degree of interdependence, I, I, I can't see how that would be possible. I mean, in fact, specifically within the context of Germany, we're already seeing that Germany's, you know, Germany's depend, we talk a lot about Germany's dependence on, uh, on Russian energy and on uh, Chinese markets. And those, those are certainly true. And in fact, China is often, people rightly remember China as Germany's closest trading partner. Yes, individual greatest trading partner. But the key word is individual, because the rest of the European Union accounts for a plurality of German trade, uh, mm-hmm. more than is accounted for with regards to trade with China alone. Mm-hmm. so the decoupling from russia was already disastrous for germany can you imagine the enormous and and that's true by the way for most european countries yeah, yeah. no for sure hmm. where i agree with you is that i think that this is a moment of sink or swim for the european union okay fine perhaps it's not quite time to close things out because i've got another question that has to follow up from that it's a moment of sink or swim for the european union What is the greatest threat, do you believe? Or actually, no, uh, that's a leading question. I'll just go with the actual question, which is what are the potential solutions to this issue of technocratic lack of representation that has been in many ways the greatest illiberal threat to the European Union, to the European community, to the European peoples, really? Well, I, I think what...
1: The, the question we were discussing right before is tied to this second one, because in a way, the kind of identification of the German economy as the model to be followed kind of nicely went with a more technocratic functioning of the EU, because simply it lowered the possibilities or the margins for action of actual political collectives solving the problem of the imbalance of power within the union would be a first step Mm. in pushing back against technocratic uh, encroachments. Mm. Another one, and maybe here Brexit could, you know, have positive consequences, because the argument for decades has been, oh, but we don't need to care about talks of sovereignty, because in any case, countries cannot leave the EU. They're too tied to us. Well, uh, the UK has demonstrated that uh, it wasn't the case, that as much as it would cost them, some people could decide to leave the union and therefore that you couldn't corner people into doing things that they didn't want to hmm. simply for the fact that they didn't have the option to leave. Hmm. They do have the option to leave. I think another solution to that problem would be a, a more... um. Uh, deliberate system of political alliances, you mentioned uh, France, Spain, Italy, and Holland. if these countries were able to work more closely together, they would have sufficient pull on the institutions to kind of diminish the power that uh, the technocratic structure in Brussels has taken, but not so much because it was so much more powerful than states, but simply because states left them do that. Mm. It's mostly political impotence and paralysis that fostered that system because it has in many ways grown chaotically without any real sense of purpose. So yeah, I think it's an irrational growth and cutting back on that would certainly be difficult because as I said, once people get responsibilities or power, It's harder to have them abandon them Hmm. than preventing that from happening in the first place. But the political legitimacy definitely lies within the nations. Hmm. Societies won't reproach their leaders from standing up to these institutions if they agree with the objectives. So I don't think there is any political capital on the part of the union to prevent a readjustment That a readjustment will happen is not certain. As I said, I'm not necessarily very optimistic, Uh, but that such a readjustment is necessary, I do think is
0: uh, the case. I agree, Uh, both with regards to the fact that a readjustment is necessary and also with the fact that the tentacular nature of the European Union makes an adjustment difficult, even if there is will for it. I also think there's an interesting parallel between the forms of nationalist populism that have emerged across Europe and in the United States, with many of the same claims being made about Brussels that are being made about Washington. And I think it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, you have this idea of a post-national sort of community of states, uh, you know, a technocratic community of states. But on the other hand, you have a single unified nation state. And despite that, the same concerns exist about lack of representation, about a willful disregard for the common man. It's very interesting, I think.
1: Well, that that, that is very true. And I think it goes back to your point about secessionism Hmm. and the fact that a lot of our political disagreements today revolve not around institutional arrangements, but about our perception, both very moral and passionate or at least based on political passions, our perception of the sincerity or insincerity of the civic friendship that ties us. Mm. In a lot of ways, populism is an accusation towards the elites that are, are being accused of seceding from mm. the rest of society. The tonality of that discourse is really all about, uh, are you really with us? Are you working for us? Are we in the same boat Mm. These people are really asking, do we still share the same fate? Mm. And therefore, can we still make institutions work that have as their purpose to allow us to govern ors- ourselves collectively? Mm. So the calling into question of the institutions really has its roots in the health or uh, frailty of the feeling of civic friendship. Mm. And I think that should be a much bigger concern for policymakers to take seriously the issue of fostering and cultivating that feeling within the population, because I I think that's really what's become so fragile in our Mm. societies, which brings it even closer to the comparison with secessionist movement, because it also has huge demographic and geographical components. Mm. The importance of capital cities, or in the US, the coasts against flyover country, London versus the rest of England, or Paris versus the rest of France, all these issues have shaped the geography and the political geography of countries because it's often perceived as we are being ruled from the big city in the center of the country and they have a different life, live according to different principles. They have no sense of what we would need and no intention to provide it. Hmm. All these issues revolve around the health, and power of the national feeling of civic friendship, I think. Hmm.
0: I agree. But to sort of bring things full circle, I think that Ukraine has had a massive impact on that perception because in many ways you've got this populist nationalism which expressed the idea that, yes, sure, there's this idea of disdain for the common man and this desire of the elite to some degree to separate from the rest of the country or the rest of the countries, say, and in many ways, Ukraine, the fact that the invasion of Ukraine could happen was disastrous for this idea of a global class completely detached from national entities. And paradoxically, it also shattered the idea that nations can be entirely indifferent to uh, the engagements, the military and political engagements of other nations. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I feel like it began the process of re-establishing. That connection. And again, I was surprised to see the willingness of many European countries to make sacrifices for the purposes of building, establishing, uh, creating a collective response to a common problem. And I think in many ways that's heartening.
1: I hope that this will teach politicians the kind of moral resources that are still in our societies, because things have evolved in public discourse in such a way that it seems to be impossible, or it seems ridiculous and old-fashioned to resort to arguments about civic duty or political virtue. And I think it's quite beautiful that uh, European societies are ready to make, as you said, sacrifices for the sake of a cause uh, that they deem just. Mm. But the big issue here is that it's become so difficult for elites, at least, because, you know, common men still think according to common moral categories. But it seems to be obsolete today to claim to any idea of the good life or of the just society for the sake of respect for the diversity of uh, moral opinions and political systems. And I think that wars and intense political conflicts are precisely what lead us to understand that uh, the defense of freedom doesn't mean the absolute openness to the otherness of the other Mm. uh, that people take it to be. Yeah, in a sense, modern political philosophy departed from the question of natural obligations asserting the primacy of human freedom. By asserting this, we we assert two other things. The absence of natural obligations means that there is no human nature or that human nature is malleable and can change throughout history. And second, that this underdetermination of human conduct in principle means that the focus for political philosophy shifts from practical judgment, the way I relate to the action as it depends on me, to humanity as a whole, because the reason for that is whatever end I deem worthy of my action or of my freedom by claiming that freedom on the primacy of that freedom, precisely because I claim it as a product of my freedom, I cannot claim to exercise command over others in its name. Otherwise it wouldn't be freedom. The main question is not how I should use my freedom then, the moral question, but it's what use men in general make of that freedom. So collective government, the answer to the right kind of government, depends much less on the answer to the question of how one should live now, but much more on the average behavior of human beings, on anthropology. And the answer to that question is tied to our perception of human nature. Is it good or bad? The right kind of institutions depend of, of what I can expect from others. If human beings are bad, I'll expect very little from others, and so I'll expect a great deal from the states, authoritarian regimes. If human nature is good, it will be the contrary. And to tie up with the first assertion that human nature is malleable, it depends on the progressive success of institution in shaping human behavior towards less dangerosity that the kind of global society may emerge. And I think going back to what I said about the problematic nature of the dialectic of of openness and closeness, this whole new philosophical understanding of the political question on the basis of the primacy of freedom is precisely what leads us to the kind of illusions that we have on the behavior of other regimes and the kind of illusions that we have on the conditions of our own regime. Our liberal democracy depends much more on a shared sense of mutual obligation, than we tend to assume. Inasmuch as we enjoy collectively engaging in free activities where we do not depend on the comment of others, such a sphere of freedom only exists within the broader reality of a political community based on these feelings of natural obligations. And these relations of command and obedience between citizens. Hmm.
0: I don't know what you make of that. What I make of it is that it's a reinterpretation of the way that we view freedom within the context of a democratic society. That freedom isn't about individual, rather the the emancipation of the individual to do what uh, what they fully want at any time, but. Rather, it is an, a moral obligation for the pursuit of the freedom of uh, others.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Uh, because I can only do whatever I want whenever I want because others behave in a certain way. If I'm in a violent world, I cannot expect to act the way I just described. Hmm. And to a large extent, the conditions of freedom are determined by the relationship between the political collectivities uh, within which freedom exists. Hmm. If anything, the war in Ukraine reminds us that the societies that allow us to be free to a large extent in many aspects of our lives depends on our commitment to their uh, preservation.
0: Hmm. I do what I must in order to preserve the freedom of those who live in a society with me, yes. Yeah. Yeah no I believe that's completely true and in fact I do what I want when I want is more uh is, is more akin to the to the definition of psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> all right well I think that's that's a that's a beautiful note on which to end the interview. Kai, many thanks for for your um uh, enlightening appearance on the Talkville 21 podcast.
1: Thank you Shane. Uh, it was really a pleasure.
0: A shared pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com, and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz No. 9, Opus 40, For our intro and outro music, this piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at Incompetech.com.